You're listening to the Nazarene Podcast, where I bring you truth and nothing but truth. But the question is, can you handle the truth? On today's episode, our talk will be, when does the Sabbath start or begin? Stay tuned. Coming right up. Shalom, shalom, friends, shalom. It's been a long time since I've posted up anything lately. And I have to apologize for that. Reason being was because, as many of you know, I used to drive trucks. I don't know if I mentioned it before on any of these episodes, but I used to drive trucks for Amazon. And I was let go from that job. And being let go, I was dealing with a lot of stuff, dealing with what I was going to do to provide and support my family. But I thank Yahweh for his faithfulness he opened up another door for me to um, enter into another place of employment and that took a little bit of time for me because most of the time when I do these recordings I do it during the day because I was working at night but a lot of my uh, training for this new job that I'm at was done during the day I would come home and when I would come home I would be tired, so I'm not going to make no excuses. I just didn't get in the groove. I had had enough in me to do a podcast. But now that I'm back on nights at this new job, I have the time and opportunity to begin making these podcasts again. So once again, I apologize if for the, if I bet, probably about a month I haven't posted anything, but um. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. Uh, as I said, and as I stated in the opening, our episode for today is called When Does the Sabbath Start? So let's get into it. Because in modern culture, most of us have been raised to believe that the new days begins at midnight. We've all been there. You've been there. I've been there. And this is one of the questions that We've always asked ourselves, and then since coming to faith, if you're like me, we've all questioned and wonder when does the day actually begin? Because there is no scriptural precedence for this belief, and the way that midnight um, is said today would be impossible, folks, without a mechanical clock. And and check this out, and since Yahuwah is the one who created days and night. It's important for us to understand when he regards or when he regards a new day to begin. And this becomes important if we want to keep the Ten Commandments because the Fourth Commandment says that we must, that we must remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So the purpose of this episode will demonstrate from the scriptures that evening marks the time when a day has ended and a new 24-hour day begins. As we begin in this study, and as I begin to go forward, you will notice that I often refer to the Hebrew and the Greek. And that is so that we can be sure that we are getting the true meanings that Yahweh attended when He inspired the Scriptures. The best way to arrive at a proper understanding of Hebrew or, a Hebrew or Greek word is to examine how it was used throughout the Scriptures. 
In other words, the lexicons are nice, but examining the various contexts of Hebrew and Greek word is the very thing that lexicon writes to do when coming up with their definitions. Therefore, it is important, friends, important that we trace their steps rather than just blindly accepting what a lexicon may have to say. So beginning, we have to go to the beginning, right? Genesis 1. And according to scriptures, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, the waters and all that are in them in six days. So let's read Genesis 1 to 2. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of Elohim was hovering over the face of the waters. So let's get this straight. So Elohim begins his creation of heavens and earth in Genesis chapter 1-1. It is important to note that the earth is already present in verse 2, friends. We can't overlook that. It's already present. Otherwise, there would have not been any face of the waters for the spirit of Elohim to move upon. And there would have not been a face of the deep for darkness to be upon. So therefore, Genesis 1-1 is describing the first event which occurred on day one, the creation of the heavens and the earth. And with this, other, with this, other scriptures is going to agree as we're going to continue on. A careful study of the four accounts of Yahushua's resurrection will reveal that Yahshua, excuse me, that Yahuwah regards a day to begin at evening. For simplicity, right, I'm going to share a few scriptures side by side of the timing that the women came to the tomb. Matthew 28, verse 1. And it says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward dawn on the first day of the week, Miriam from Magdala and the other Miriam came to see the tomb. So the timing is after the Sabbath, right, toward the dawn on the first day of the week. The position of the sun toward dawn so hot had not yet risen in the time reference when they left for the tomb. And we're going to see the same thing in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. What was the timing? First day of the week. Early while it was still dark. Position of the sun still dark so the sun had not yet risen. And where had they gone to? They left to go to the tomb. Now Mark and Luke says something a little bit different. Mark 16 says and very early the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So the timing is very early of the first day of the week when the sun had risen. Where was the position of the sun? It had risen. Um, Luke 24 suggests the same thing. Now upon the first day of the week, very early the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others came with them. On the first day of the week was the timing, very early in the morning. The position of the sun was very early in the morning, so the sun has not risen. So what was the time reference when they arrived at the tomb? So if we're honest with ourselves, on the surface, 
It would appear that these four accounts contradict one another, but they are easily reconciled when we understand that Matthew and John are speaking about time, about, excuse me, about the time they set out to head to the tomb, but Mark and Luke will be speaking of when they actually arrived at the tomb. Let me say that again. Matthew and John are speaking about the time they set out to the tomb. But when we look at Mark and Luke, they will be speaking of when they actually arrived at the tomb. Big difference, right? So since a person needed to travel on foot, it would have taken some time to get there. Now notice that while John 20, 20 verse 1 says it was already the first day of the week, it also says that it was still dark. If it is still dark, that would mean that the first day of the week had already begun prior to sunrise. This would mean that the first day of the week began at the previous sunset. And the word translate dark does not indeed mean dark or cannot have any other meaning. The word translate still, it says still dark in John 20 verse 1, um, is known as eti. And, and a very different word is found in scripture always carries a meaning similar to still or yet. And the actual definition given in the strong lexicon is yet still. In other words, of time or degree. So some who believe a day begins at sunrise has suggested that eti can carry a meaning of no longer, but the only time it can mean no longer or no more is when it is accompanied by a Greek word which means no. For instance, let's look at Galatians 3, um, 25, chapter 3, verse 25. But after the faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The lexicon number 2089, right? And 3765. But in Hebrews, let's look at Hebrews 8.12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no, number 364, more, number 2089. So the time only number 2089, Eti can no longer can mean no longer is when it's coupled with another word that means no. To say that eti means no longer will be like a father trying to tell us that our English word light actually means darkness because they saw the word light being used in the phrase no light. And I also heard that eti can mean after that, knowing that context is the key. Friends, we have to study. We have to study. So looking into it diligently, but it could find any place where Eti is translated after that in the King James Version or any, or any other translation. The strong list after that as one of the transitions in the KJV. Words after the in the Strong's definition of the KJV translation of the word, but it simply does not exist and the Thea lexicon agrees that it does not exist. Also notice that Matthew 28 1 says, says it is after the Sabbath, which indicates the first day of the week has begun. The sun had not yet risen, though um, through, excuse me, though, because it says that it was still towards dawn. Let's look at it. Matthew 28, verse 1. I'm reading from the ISR. <clears throat> now, after the Sabbath toward dawn, on the first day of the week, Miriam from Magdala. And the other Miriam came to see the tomb. So in this instance, I use the scriptures version because it 
actually conveys a Greek word used in this instance, which is number 2020 and means to begin to grow light. The Sabbath had ended at evening and now it's beginning to grow light outside just before the sun rose. So therefore it was towards dawn, but not quite sunrise when the women started heading towards the doom, towards the tomb, excuse me. It does not mean sunrise. There are two Greek words that actually do describe sunrise. Let's look at Luke in the scriptures version. In the, um, chapter 1 verse 78 it says, Through the tender compassion of our Elohim which the daybreak from on high has looked upon us. So Anatole, number 395. 2 Peter 119. And so we have the prophetic confirm which you do well to heed as light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns to Gozio, number 1306, and the morning star rises in your hearts. But the word used in Matthew 28, 1 toward dawn describes same period of time as John 20, verse 1, the time when they started heading towards the tomb and it was still technically dark outside, but the light of dawn was on the horizon. And in Mark 61, it appears that a possible reason it took some time to get to the tomb was due to their purchase of spices. Because Mark 61 says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Solomay brought spices, that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So this is yet a more evidence that the Sabbath had ended the evening before. And of course, if we believe the Sabbath day is still in effect until sunrise, the woman in the cellar of spices would have been breaking the Sabbath. Yes? I mean, we know they would have been breaking the Sabbath. So based on the four counts, it is evident that the chronology was, the, was that the women started heading to the tomb before the sun rose on the first day of the week. And then they went and brought some spices after the Sabbath, yet before sunrise. And then they arrived at the tomb at sunrise. So here, if we're looking a little bit closely, here is a summary of how these accounts actually contradict sunrise to sunrise, Sabbath keeping. Number one, John 20 verse one says that it was on the first day of the week, yet it was still dark. Therefore, the first day of the week had already begun begun prior to sunrise. Number two, Matthew 16 verse 1 says that they brought spices when the Sabbath was passed, yet it was before the sun had risen, proving the Sabbath at sundown. Matthew 28 1 says that it was after the Sabbath, during the period of the time that it began to grow light, a word that describes a period of time just before sunrise. These verses clearly support the fact that Sabbath ends at sundown and the first day of the week was already in motion prior to sunrise. Watch this. Evening to evening, scripture, scripture plainly commands from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. How do we notice? How do we notice? How do I notice? Clearly, Leviticus chapter 23 verse 27 all the way to verse 32 says this. Also, the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall 
afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to Yahuwah. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before Yahuwah your Elohim. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on the same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not work on that same day, the person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in your dwellings. And it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. If that's not convincing, let's look at Numbers chapter 29, verse 7. And it says, on the tenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall afflict your souls and you shall not do any work. So since Yahweh doesn't contradict himself, it is no contradiction that the 10th day of the month is Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, while also commanding that we begin and end this day at evening. Since the 10th day began in the ending of evening, the day surrounded would need to begin in the end of evening as well, right? All days begin and end at evening. You still not convinced yet? Here's another example. Exodus 12, verse 15. Excuse me, verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove all leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Wow, such strong. On the first day, this shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day, this shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. But that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared for you. So you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread. For on this same time or same day, I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations <clears throat> excuse me, as an everlasting ordinance. <clears throat> excuse me. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, of, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation, whether he's a stranger or native of the land. Now, I want you to notice that the same language which describes the timing of the 10th day of the 7th month, Day of Atonement, is also used to describe the 15th day of the month when it's regarding the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And here, and the common thread between this Feast of the Day of Atonement is they both, right, have eating restrictions of some kind. In ancient times, without the electric light that we have today, it was typical for a person to work throughout the day until sundown. And at that time, they would sit down to eat, but since the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Unleavened Bread had eating restrictions, it would mean that they would need to break from their normal habit to keep these observances. And therefore, these are perfect places in scriptures for Yahweh to explain when a day begins so that they will remember to refrain from eating leaven or in the case of the Day of Atonement, refrain from sitting down to eat as they normally would in the evenings. So why do these verses 
uses a phrase like on the ninth day of the evening or the 14th day at evening to describe the time when each observance begins? That's a good question. We use similar language in our own day when we're trying to tell people when we start keeping Sabbath. And one will say on Friday at sundown we start keeping Sabbath, even though it is understood that Friday sundown is actually the beginning of the Sabbath day. And when Yahweh is attempted to describe when the 15 days begin, he says on the 14th day of the month of evening, sundown, to describe when we begin the 15th day. So in other words, if you are sitting in your house on the 14th day of the month, the 15th day, the time you begin eating unleavened bread, will begin at sundown. If Yahweh wanted to explain to them that a day begins at sundown, he, he, could, look, he couldn't say at the going down of the sun on the 15th you eat unleavened bread because some might think that, that, would, um, that they would need to start with eating unleavened bread in the middle of what would be the 15th day of the month and explaining that the feast of the unleavened bread begins on the 15th day and we start when sundown occurs on the 14th day should be sufficient explanation for us to understand when the 15th actually begins. Otherwise, you aren't actually beginning the Feast of the Unleavened Bread on the 15th, but you are starting in the middle of the 14th. Then you were in in the middle of the 21st, on the 21st day, right? Which makes no sense at all, friends. And besides, you can't uh, get seven days out of the year as beginning or ending at evening without affecting how the Sabbath is observed during those seven days and affecting every day of the year. So let's let's continue. Let's keep on going. Friends, this might be a little bit longer than normal, but this is some good stuff that I want to share with you guys regarding um, when the Sabbath begins. They came no more on the Sabbath. So if we take the time to study um, Nehemiah thoroughly in context, it would also clearly demonstrate when the Sabbath begins. And I want us to examine this in full context. Let's go to Nehemiah um, chapter 13, verse 15. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Terry dwelt also there, who brought fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on Shabbat to the children of Yehuda and in Jerusalem. They contended with the nobles of Yehuda and said to them, What evil thing is this you have done? Or what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Shabbat? Did not your father do thus and did not our Elohim bring all disaster on us and on this city? And yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Shabbat. What is Nehemiah speaking about when he says this? Did not your father do thus and did not our Elohim bring all disasters on us on the city? So in his writings of the prophet Jeremiah and Yahweh, Jeremiah, Yahweh made an offer to the children of Israel 
it is a quite, listen, I want you to look at this because it's a quite amazing offer. If we look at this, actually, he said that if they would only stop bringing burdens through the gates on Jerusalem on Sabbath to keep Shabbat, he would bless the city and allow it to remain forever. And kings and princes would enter in those gates forever. Sons of David riding in horses and chariots to an everlasting city. He told Jeremiah, he told Jeremiah to stand in the gates, to stand in each of the gates of the city and declare these things. And here we see this. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Thus Yahweh said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Yehuda came in and by which they go out in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear the words of Yahweh, you kings of Yehuda, and all, all, you, all of you Yehuda, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter in by these gates. Now I want us to notice that Jeremiah is standing at the gates while giving this message. Now we're going to remember this for later, friends. Let's continue verse 17, um, chapter 17, verse 21. Thus say Yahweh, take heed of yourselves and bear no burden on the Shabbat, nor bring in by the gates, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Shabbat, nor do any work, but allow the Shabbat as a day I commanded your father. Or keep it holy as the day I commanded your fathers. But they do not obey nor incline their ear, but made it, but made their neck stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instructions. And it shall be that if you hear me, if you heed me carefully, says Yahweh, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on Shabbat, but hallow the Shabbat to do no work in it. Then shall enter the gates of the city kings and prince sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. They and their prince accompanied by the men of Yehuda and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the city shall remain forever. And they shall come to the city of Yehuda from the place around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains, from the soft burning burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of Yahuwah. Man, that's a lot of stuff. But that's a good promise, an amazing promise, what he's describing here. So Yahuwah gives a promise, right? And as we read it, what a promise. Um, we have to say it was. He didn't ask, he didn't even ask them to serve him. And not uh, or not worship idols. He just says this. He says, just keep Shabbat. Right? Let's look, let's let me let me look at it again. He didn't even ask them to serve him or not worship idols. He just said, keep Shabbat. Keep Sabbath. And I think Yahweh knew that if they would keep the Sabbath, that the Sabbath would keep them. Meaning cause them to delight themselves in Yahweh um, per Isaiah chapter 58. And this memorial of creation will cause them to seek Yahweh weekly. But if they choose to bring burdens through those gates and break the Shabbat, he will burn those gates with fire. Now we know that if we continue to go on in scripture a um, few books down, we know that because of their unwillingness to keep the Shabbat, 
that eventually the city gates burned. Let's read Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27. And he says this, But if you would not heed me to hallow the Shabbat, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Shabbat, then I will kindle a fire in his gates, and it shall devour the places or devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So it makes sense why Nehemiah says in chapter 13, verse 18, did not your fathers do thus? In other words, did not your fathers do the same thing that you're doing? And did not our Elohim bring this disaster on us and on this city? And he says, but yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. In other words, listen, don't you remember that our fathers did the same thing? And did you not forget of did you not forget what Yahweh did? He brought disaster on us in the city. And then he's reminding the people, he said, listen, and if you remember all that stuff, if you remember when this occurred, how is it that you don't realize that you're adding wrath on Israel by not keeping Sabbath? So Nehemiah, of course, of action from this point would make a lot more sense when we understand his comments in proper context and Jeremiah said that Yahweh would allow Jerusalem to remain forever if they would keep if they kept Shabbat and forbid the bringing of burdens into the gates of the city but he would destroy if they permitted these things so what does Nehemiah does do excuse me well let's look at 19 verse 19 in chapter 13 of Nehemiah so it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it begun to be dark before the Shabbat, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Shabbat. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Shabbat day. This is, this is, this is, I like this. I like what he did. He, he put watchmen at the gate, right? He manned every gate. And he commanded for them to be shut. And if anybody was trying to come in, bringing in burdens or work of any type, they wouldn't. They couldn't come in, right? So to ensure that no burdens were brought through the gates of on the Shabbat, he made as he made a special point to command that the gates be shut as it begins to be dark before the Shabbat. And then looking at the Hebrew, there is no doubt that this refers to a time period or or time prior to sunset and the Hebrew word translated dark in this verse is number 6751 which means shadowing in other words related to 6751 carry this kind of meaning as, um, also so here's a couple of examples for these words right Job 40 um, chapter, chapter 40 verse 22 the lotus tree covers Covered him with their shades. 67, 67, 52, which is is that number. Excuse me. Stumbling over my words. The willows by the brook surrounded him. Ezekiel 31, 3. And indeed, Assyria was clear, or Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with fine branches that shaded. Number 67, 51. The forest in a high stature, and its tops was among the thick bows. Psalm 17, 8. 
Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow. Number 67, 38 of thy wings. So the NIV says this. In Nehemiah 19. Um, chapter 13, verse 19. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Shabbat, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gate so that no load could be brought in on the Shabbat. So no matter how one translated, it has something to do with shadows. Since there are no shadows after sunset, the verse would be, the verse, uh, let me put it like this, the verse would have to be speaking of a time prior to sunset. Long shadows are a characteristic of time just before sunset. So now that we have established the timing of Nehemiah's closing of the gates occurred just before sundown, that would have been the purpose of shutting at the time. Obviously, it was the time just before Shabbat. And Nehemiah did not want people bringing in and carrying burdens into Jerusalem on the Shabbat, so he had the gates shut just before sundown to make sure of that. He shut the gates right at sundown. Someone could have just come in just prior to sundown and, and, and brought their stuff around or lugged it around to their destination on Shabbat. Nehemiah 13, 20 says this, Now the merchants and the seller of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. In other words, he was going to lay the smacketh down on them. From that time on, they came no more on the Shabbat. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Shabbat. Remember me, O my Elohim, concerning this also and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. So in the previous verses, we're not clear enough. We have Nehemiah himself telling us when the Shabbat is. So let's look at some events here. Number one, the merchants came and spent the night around the wall, presumably in hopes to bribe their way or to buy sell to anyone leaving the city. Number two, Nehemiah threatens to lay hands on them if they spend the night around the wall. And then number three, inspired scripture says this, from the time from that time on, they came no more on the Shabbat. Since the scripture tells us that they were coming on the Shabbat and they were coming to spend the night around the wall, this would clearly tie the Shabbat as beginning in the evening. The gates were shut as the shadows fell upon the gates of Jerusalem just before the Shabbat. Then the merchants came afterward and tried to spend the night around the wall, hoping to do what, hoping to get in the next morning. And Nehemiah then threatened them to prevent them from spending the night around the wall, a time the scripture calls the Shabbat. Now to take care of that problem, Nehemiah then commands the Levites, cleanse themselves and guard the gates so that Shabbat will be sanctified. Earlier he had placed his own servants there, but now he is trusting the Levites to do what they are supposed to do. Guard those gates from Shabbat breakers, lest the gates be burned with fire again, as Jeremiah prophesied. That's nice. Awesome. I like that. He removed his men. 
So he tells the Levites, this is your job. This is your duty. You're the ones that's supposed to be doing this. You're the one that's supposed to make sure that the Shabbat is kept sacred. This is your job. This is what you were called to do. You were separated for, for this by Yahweh himself. Now do your due diligence. Stand by the gates and make sure that it remains sanctified after you sanctified yourself. And if you let anyone in and, you, and, 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 and any breakers come in, then the gates will be burned with fire again. As Jeremiah prophesied, pretty much, then it'll be your fault or kind of be your doing. So at the setting of the sun, another scripture supporting the fact that the Sabbath ends at evening, right, is in Luke chapter 4, verse 38. And let's read that. And having risen out of the synagogue, he entered into the house of Simeon, and the mother-in-law of Simeon was pressed with a great fever. And they did ask him about her. And having stood over her, he rebuked the fever. And he left her, and presently, having risen, she was ministering to him. And at the setting of the sun, all, as many had any ailing, was manifold sickness, brought them unto him. And he, on each one of them, his hands having put, did he heal? Okay, so what is it saying? For people to wait until the setting of the sun to bring the sick people, Yahushua, for him to heal, demonstrates that it was certainly a first century practice to end the Shabbat at sundown. And after all, why wait until sundown to carry the sick to him if it was still considered to be a Shabbat day? So let's look at some of this thing. Uh, let's look at some historical evidence. Confirming the above scripture we also have, that we also have, right? Historical evidence that in the first century, the Shabbat was observed starting at evening. And Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, makes the following comment. So let's look at some of this. Wars of Jews, the War of Jews, a book that um, not many people are frequent with. The War of Jews. Uh, chapter 4, verse 582. And the last was erected above the top of Pasipora, where one of the priests stood, of course, and gave a signal beforehand with a trumpet at the beginning of every seventh day in the evening twilight, as also at the evening when that day was finished, as giving notice to the people when they were to stop work and when they would go to work again. So his report is that a trumpet was blown at the beginning of Shabbat with Josephus designated to be in the evening. Will historically mark the time when the people should stop working and beginning work. Josephus had no reason to lie, friends. And the, the archaeological excuse me, finds even occur with Josephus' comments about the place of trumpeting. He goes on to write and says, when we have, when we, when we evacuated the beautiful paved Herodian Street adjacent to the southern wall and near the southwestern corner of the enclosed wall, we found a particular large ashlar block. On the inside was a niche where a man might stand, especially if the ashlar were joined to one another, which would enlarge the niche. On the outside 
was a carefully and elegant incised Hebrew inscription to the place of the trumpeting to declare if the restoration of the word declare is correct the rest of the mission part of the scripture probably went on to tell us more about the declaring of the beginning and the end of the Shabbat. The stone had been toppled during the Roman destruction of the temple onto the street below where it had lain for nearly 2,000 years until we uncovered it. We must, have, we must have originally come from the pinnacle of the southwestern corner of the Temple Mount from a spot on top of the temple chambers. A priest would blow a trumpet on Shabbat Eve to announce the arrival of Shabbat and the secession of all labor and to announce on the following evening the departure of Shabbat and the resumption of all labor. So in other words, the entire city was visible from this spot on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount and the clarion call of the trumpet would reach the farthest markets of the city. Such a scene is recounted by Josephus in the work of the Jewish War. Right, and that's an archaeological book. So I know that at some point, some might say that the Jews or the Pharisees were observing it wrong in the first century. But it wouldn't seem pretty odd that Yahushua would say things like, "Hypocrite, does not each one of you, on the Sabbath, loosen his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water?" But then never once mention. But then never once mentioned that they break the Shabbat every week when the trumpeter sends out his call to resume working after sundown. I think we can be certain that such a major issue would not escape the attention of Yahushua and the apostles. With as strict as the Jews were about Shabbat breaking, it seems quite unlikely that they would even try to change it. And the idea that all Jews scattered around the world would simultaneously change the time that they observed the Shabbat, right, is kind of ridiculous, especially when you consider that there is not a shred of evidence indicating such a change. So the scripture seems pretty clear to me that Yahuwah makes, um, lets us know the days, from, the days from evening to evening. And while today... Some believe it's from midnight to midnight. But in all honesty, we need to submit ourselves to the daily heavenly clock that Yahweh himself established at creation. And it makes perfect sense that the day ends when a day ends at evening, friends. Hey, this was my time. I know this was a little bit long, but it's okay. Like I said, uh... It's good to be back. I was off for about a month because I was just trying to figure some things out. And um, now that I know pretty much what my schedule is like, um, you'll be getting more podcasts from me. But until then, friends, listen, um, I want you to continue to keep our country in prayer, especially with all this senseless killing that has been going on. Let's continue to keep Texas, Buffalo, and the other cities that or dealing with mass shootings if you've been in the news. And let's just pray that more people's eyes are open to truth and more believers' eyes are open to truth. Uh, listen, we can see the crumbling 
of our society. Why? Because it's not hard to not look at scriptures or look into scriptures and see that because they didn't keep the Shabbat holy, that destruction came upon the city of Jerusalem. And it's no coincidence that we're seeing the same decline, the moral decline, and the destruction of our whatever's going on in the world today because people have forgotten to keep his day holy, the Shabbat, let alone keeping his commandments. So let's continue to pray for the families of those who lost a loved one to many of the senseless shootings that we've heard about and seen in the last past six months because there's been a lot of shootings. But until then, friends, my prayer to you is that may the Lord bless you, may he keep you, and may he cause his face to shine upon you and that his shalom will rest on you and your families. Hey, friends, shalom, and I'll catch you on the next podcast. Be blessed.